a complete theory of relating. So this is going to say everything that you never learned anywhere about relating, I am willing to bet. If you have any problems in relating at all, this is what you should listen to. And though it's not going to solve all of your problems to have gone through this, as I learned when I was very small, knowing is half the battle. So you'll have that half done. Part 1. Relating versus Relationships Now I have to share something with you that's going to shock you a little bit. Something that might scare you, something you probably don't want to hear. And that is that you have been hoodwinked. Yes, you may not realize it, but you've been hoodwinked, you've been deceived, you've been confused, you've been taught something that isn't true. And this belief which you have been given, which has been hammered into you by your parents, by society, by countless Disney movies, hundreds of pop songs, lots of rom-coms, and love novels, is something so basic that you're going to think I'm crazy when I say it to you. Yet, unlearning is more difficult than learning, and I would encourage you to just listen for a little bit to decide if this might be actually true and helpful for you. And what I would like to tell you, the first great secret that I'm going to impart to you, is that there is no such thing as a relationship. Can you think about that a moment? So if you were to prove to me that there was a relationship, how would you do it? Can I taste it? Can I smell it? Can I see it? Can I hear it? Can I feel it? With my fingers. No, you cannot sense in any way a relationship. A relationship is strictly a concept that has been placed in your mind. It's a belief that you have. It's an abstract belief. And it's an abstract belief that has no provable basis in reality, no demonstrable basis in reality. We will look at that for just a moment. So if I were to ask you, what is a relationship? How would you define it? The sum of people's feelings for one another? When two people are together? What is a relationship? Relating as a verb is an action between two people or a person and something else, like an animal perhaps, but really we're going to look at human relationships. Anything else is beyond the scope of my understanding and say that relating as a verb exists, but relationship does not exist. So you can relate to someone else, you can speak with them, you can touch them, you can go bowling together, but you can never have a relationship with someone. Even more important, by defining something called a relationship, by trying to put this structure under glass and preserve it with some sort of contract, 
only strengthens the illusion that there is something called a relationship. Acting as if something exists, which really doesn't, is one definition of insanity. If I walked around constantly speaking to my imaginary friend, then you would think I was crazy and have me committed. Yet we treat many things as if they're true, with no demonstrable knowledge about them. Our country, corporations, our religion, and our family, and our relationship. So people talk about sailing in the relationship, but I won't. I just want to share with you that this is simply an abstract concept. And this abstract concept of relationship gets in the way of you relating with those with whom you would most like to relate in a deep and meaningful way. Now, this isn't to say that abstract concepts cannot exist, because they can. And they can also be demonstrated as true or false or unprovable. However, if you have an abstract concept in your mind, and you have no definition of it, or your definition does not match the definition of the person with whom you believe yourself to be in a relationship, then you are heading for trouble, for obvious reasons. Just as if you couldn't agree on what a car is or a house. If you believe there were dragons and lived your life according to that belief, if I said there are dragons outside your front door, then how would you act? if you believe that. Completely contrary to rational handling, wouldn't you? To rational action. But this is the same thing. This relationship, as a conceptual model, is just something inside your head. And just as you may make decisions that make no sense and are contrary to your happiness, if you believe in dragons outside your house, the belief in a relationship can do just that. It can change your behavior. Because you have a belief in something which probably is undefined, and even if it's defined, may not be the same thing as the person with whom you're trying to relate at the moment. And even if you both have this concept that, and it matches, then it will probably be a static thing that doesn't change while both you and the person with whom you're in relating are changing constantly. So just as there are no dragons, there are no relationships of any kind. From now on, I'd like you to think in terms of relating as a fluid verb instead of a static noun. If you could define relationship, the best ideas that I've found are the sum of people's feelings for one another, might be considered a relationship, 
or the processes in relating, which again brings us back to that word relating. What does it mean to relate? Relating within a relationship, as we've previously called it, but as I will call from now on relating, is a three-step process. There are only three steps in the process of relating to anyone at any time. These steps are universal and generalized. The first step is discovering your needs and recognizing your needs. The second step is expressing your needs and asking for them to be met. And the third step is nego negotiation. So once again, a three-step process. Discovering your needs and understanding your needs. Expressing your needs and asking for them to be met. And negotiation. This is all you need to know how to do these three things to relate to anyone in any way, regardless of whether this is your boss, or your spouse, or your child, or your parents, or your friends, or anyone else in society. Before you apply a label to anyone, whether that be child, or parent, or anything, that person is first a human being, and you must relate to them on that basis. Why is relating all about needs? Because every relationship you enter into, and every relating that you have, as I would call it, is to meet certain needs of yours. Now you may say, no, I entered many relationships, I related to many people for no purpose of my own, simply to be altruistic, to love, to give of myself. Well, guess what? There is a human need for community. There is a human need to give to the greater good, to be useful. There is a human need to fulfill others' needs. It's called natural giving in nonviolent communication. And it's the reason we do anything that we are not paid for and we are not coerced into doing. Coercion being defined as having blame, shame, guilt, threat, punishment, or reward applied to us to manipulate us into doing something. So any natural giving, relating, that we participate in with another person is also to get our needs met, or is only to get our needs met, regardless of whether this is the need to be or the strategy of meeting the need is to be known as a good parent, or to raise someone who will take care of me in my old age, or whatever it may be. So what are needs? Needs are factors 
that contribute to our happiness. We have different levels of needs, and depending on who you ask, you can get different categories of human needs. Let me put it this way. This came from the movie I Am. If you were cold and alone and afraid in a dark forest with no one around you and you were wet and you had no food, would you be happy? Probably not. But if you came to a nice cabin and you were able to have a warm bath, put on dry clothes, have something to eat that you really liked, and then be able to sleep in a nice warm bed and had a fire in a nice warm room, then you would be significantly happier, wouldn't you? Why is this? Because some of your needs were getting met more effectively than they were a little bit previously. Now, many of our needs require cooperation from others to fulfill. We cannot fulfill them alone, which is why, on a fundamental level, we relate from our very birth. I will list the needs and the categories that I most often use. There are nine different categories. Number one, sustenance, meaning food, air, water, shelter. That which you need to sustain life. Number two, safety or protection. Number three, love. Number four, empathy and presence. Number five, rest, recreation, and play. Number six, community. Number seven, creativity. Number eight, autonomy or freedom. And number nine, meaning, purpose, contribution to life, or what I often term as spirituality. These nine needs are the whole reason you relate to anyone for any reason, whether it is to expand your autonomy or your to express your creativity, to experience community, or to find and express meaning and purpose in your life. These needs require some balance. If we fulfill one need very well, such as the need for sustenance, but ignore the other needs, we will find that we will not be happy. Only in balance will we be able to meet our needs effectively and in the long run to achieve the greatest measure of happiness. And now I want to talk about another issue. We'll call this part two. And this is how you get your needs met or by whom you get them met. 
Now it may be good, it may be useful in many situations to have someone who meets several of your needs at once. For example, when you're a child, when you're a baby, perhaps your parents meet many of them. But the more needs that you expect to get met by one person, the less likely that person will be able to meet all your needs. Let me give you an example. When I first got married, I limited my interactions with people, especially people of the opposite sex. And I expected my wife to do everything that I wanted to do. So if I wanted to go bike riding, I expected my wife to be into bike riding. If I wanted to go bowling, I expected my wife to do that. And if we apply this the other way, and she picks all of, takes all of her hobbies, let's say she's knitting, sewing, and cooking, and expects me to participate in those with her, then conflict is an inevitable result. Why is that? Because we won't all have the same interests. And even if we do have the same interests, sometimes she will want to go, want to be knitting while I want to ride a bike. So expecting her to fulfill every need that I have to engage in a particular hobby or creatively with me is ridiculous. It's also making something extremely scarce, which is extremely plentiful, and that is people. Now that may seem like an extreme example, but it's something that happens quite a lot. We expect a partner that we have to fulfill certain needs. And you will notice when you first start dating, any piece of shared time or energy is taken with appreciation and enjoyment because there's no expectation that this person has to do anything for you. A week ago, you may not have even known them, and now you're happy to be able to go to dinner with them. But once we develop labels and put them on our relating, trying to make a relationship out of them, then, to sail through the waters of life, then we have a problem. Because all of our expectations come to the fore. We have a giant list of things that we expect our partner to do. For example, now that I have a girlfriend, I have someone who will have sex with me whenever I want. Now that I have a boyfriend, I have someone who will always take out the garbage. Now that I have a girlfriend, I can watch movies with someone whenever I want. Now that I have a boyfriend, I can cuddle as much as I want, etc. 
And so many of your needs are getting met in this first period that you tend to go along with a lot of things and you tend to get so much from the needs that are being met that you uh, neglect other needs for a while or ignore them with seemingly no deleterious results or effects. No negative effects. But remember what I said. All the needs are balanced, which means no matter how much you eat, that doesn't fulfill your need for shelter or creativity or safety necessarily. These imbalances will result in strong feelings as these needs call out to be met at some time. And when these strong feelings result, they very often turn into blame for the person we feel is not meeting our needs and should by virtue of the label we have applied to them, which often results in the dissolution of the relationship. Remember, getting what you were getting from them just a little bit ago was a fantastic, enjoyable experience. And now, they not fulfilling all of the laundry list that you have for a partner, and all of a sudden they're wrong and bad and evil. This makes no sense, and it's solely due to the labels that we apply and the expectations we have within a relationship, which again doesn't exist. So what I suggest instead is that for each strategy that you have of getting a particular need met, for example, cuddling can be a way to get your need for love met in some situations. And you may have other strategies as well, such as sex. But for each strategy that you have as many resources as possible, as many people as possible to enable you to get that need met, then when you have that need and the feelings are strong that this need wants to be resolved, then you have a pool of possible people to help you meet that need. Fundamentally, the more atomized you can get each need met, meaning the smaller the individual packages are that people have to provide to you before you're able to accept the gifts that they offer in getting your needs met the more often and more completely your needs will be met. This just makes logical sense. If I had to find one person to meet all of my needs, then I would never find that person. But if I have a very small strategy that one person helps me meet, for example, one person likes to go bike riding with me, then I only have to have that person to meet that need, and they don't have to meet any of my other needs. Through, their, through other strategies. So again, it cuts against our cultural biases and things we've been taught to believe, but 
if you want to get your needs met, have as many possible resources to meet every need that you do have. Part 3 I discussed feelings and needs. Needs are what must be fulfilled for you to be happy. Feelings are the indicators about whether needs are being met or not. They are psychological indicators about the conditions of your needs being met. There are four primary feelings mad, glad, sad, and afraid. Angry, sad, afraid, and happy. The problem is we also have emotions. And emotions seem at the same time to be feelings. Really, they're not. A feeling lasts as long as a conventional orgasm, as my teacher used to say, from 8 to 12 seconds. An emotion can last for hours. An emotion is about something triggered in the past. See my podcast, Feelings vs. Emotions, for more details. A feeling is about something we have now. When an emotion is triggered, we very often tend to blame whoever triggered that emotion for bringing it up. However, we need to take responsibility for that emotion and realize that it was not caused by the person who triggered it. Why don't relationships work? I said before that there are three things that make up a relationship. Number one, recognizing your needs. Number two, expressing them, asking them to be met. And number three, negotiation. If a relationship does not work, meaning it doesn't meet the needs of one or both of the partners within it, there are three reasons why, connected to each of the three parts of relationship. Number one, you can't recognize your needs. You can't feel your needs. And that would block step one of the process. If you can't find your needs, why is this? Because feelings tell you about your needs, what they are, and what needs to be fulfilled, then if you have blocked or repressed your feelings, turning them into emotions, then you will have less or no access to your actual needs. So number one, you block or repress your feelings. Number two, you don't recognize the feeling and what it's telling you you need. 
For example, if you have the feeling of hunger, but you didn't realize it was about hunger, and instead you entertained yourself, or played, or rested, or did anything else but fulfill that need to eat, that need will get stronger and stronger, that feeling will become more and more, and yet it won't be fulfilled no matter what other needs you actually try to substitute for it and fulfill it. And this is one need that gets transposed onto many other needs. Our need for love becomes our need for food. And so we eat when actually we need to be hugged. And this causes all sorts of problems or smoke or drink. This is the source of addiction. So, blocked or repressed, or you don't understand your feelings. Number three, when the feeling comes, it's falsely identified or labeled incorrectly. So, if you learned in your religion when you have sexual feelings that they're evil, then when this need begins expressing itself through feelings of sexuality, then you will repress it or find another outlet for it that doesn't match how the need is actually met. So through this wrong teaching, you will be unable to identify this need. This, these three problems related to discovering your needs result in addictions, compulsions, extreme emotional states, such as depression, and many of the things that we label as mental illness in our society. The second way in which relating can break down and not fulfill the needs of those participating in it is that the needs are not expressed or asked for. Why might this happen? Well, you could have been shamed because, or when you express your needs. If you ask for something and your parents say, I'm not made out of money, why are you so selfish? Can't you see how hard your father works for you? Thereby using violence, which remember we defined as blame, shame, guilt, or threats, punishments, or rewards, to get you to not want what it was you wanted at that moment and not express your needs, then you will have fear around expressing your needs, even when it would be safe to express them. So your emotions can block the expression of your needs. Training and teaching is the second way. For example, Oh, a young lady never asks directly for what she wants. Or, in our culture, we wait until something is offered. Something like this. Cultural and societal training and conditioning. Don't go to the boss and ask for a raise. You wait until he sees what good work you're doing. Religion and conditioning and general societal and family patterns 
can prevent us from expressing needs and feelings connected to those needs which we have been able to recognize. The third way in which relating breaks down is that needs are not negotiated. If no comes, we think no means no, when no might mean not now, or under different circumstances, or if you can do something for me that will enable this, or a hundred other things. We haven't learned to give and take. We haven't learned very often how to negotiate for what each person in the relationship wants. We have also sometimes not learned that it's simply a question of time and that perhaps now is not the right time, but that the person would be happy to meet our needs later. Clearing up these issues doesn't necessarily mean that we will always get our needs met, but it provides us with the highest chance of doing so. So as we learn to negotiate, and the way to negotiate is to become curious and ask more questions when we receive a no, then we can learn how to more effectively get our needs met and receive a yes. If, however, we do receive a no and negotiation is unsuccessful, we realize that this person will not be the person from whom our needs can be met, and therefore we can move on to another candidate, another person with whom we can talk to get our needs met. Also, being curious about the needs of the other person, who, if we're in a loving relationship, and we give naturally and very much enjoy it, would be happy to help us fulfill our needs. If that person says no, especially if they say no with an energy that isn't happy, something of their needs that aren't being met, probably that they have an expectation of being met by us. After asking, we will open up the floor for them and show them it's okay to ask for what they want. And as they begin ask for what they want, which perhaps you weren't even aware of and you are happy to give them, their natural giving towards you can be open so that you may both enjoy the results of this negotiation, which happened because you had the courage to ask first for your needs to be met. Once you have these skills, First recognizing, then asking for, and third negotiating for your needs are out of the way, you will then be able to effectively feel, ask, and negotiate for what you need in your life. And you will be naturally drawn to maximize 
the number of resources in your life, the number of people that can help you get your needs met. You will unlearn the laundry list all or nothing mentality which has been taught by society and learn to find the right person to meet the right need at the right time and to ask for it without apology or shame. So now, warnings, disclaimers. First of all, just having a theory of relationship doesn't make it simply happen. The work needed to unlearn old patterns, allow feelings to exist and flow, learn to recognize them, express them, and then negotiate for your needs is a very long and difficult process if you're not used to it. Give yourself lots of time and lots of space to learn it. And also, put yourself in situations such as workshops where you can practice these things in a safe environment. It is much more difficult to apply them in an existing relationship that doesn't work according to these patterns. In fact, if you apply these principles to relationships that are working on less effective principles using manipulation, blame, labeling, threats, punishment, guilt, blame, your being so direct can trigger emotions of others. If this happens, you may find yourself being attacked instead of being in a discussion about getting your needs met. This will also make it difficult to change your patterns and your habits. Of course, those who react this way are showing you their current state and level as far as being willing to understand you and negotiate to give you what you want. So give yourself time if you begin to study these things. It can take a lot of work to reconnect to the original you. And I say the original you because when you were a baby, when a need wasn't being met, you expressed that need as you could and you got it met most of the time, I am hoping. So we had no shame about crying when we were hungry as babies to get that need met and that was simply our best method of expression. And when we learn language we should have more tools and be more effective at getting our needs met which enables us to be effective in the world and to have better relatings with those around us instead of less. But as we go back to that original state of really connecting to our inner selves, our inner child, if you will, and simply asking for what we want to have done, for how we want our needs to be met. And the other person may have a different strategy for us that helps us meet our needs as well. Also something to be aware of. Perhaps the strategy that we've thought of is not the most effective method. But as we go back to our childlike state and ask for our needs to be met directly, we will be able to, with our adult perspective, 
more often and more deeply have our needs met. This has been Ryan Orock. This was originally posted to byraba.com. For more information or if you have any questions, please contact me, Google Ryan Orock, and you can find me on Facebook and under me at byraba.com. Thank you.